we are in a series called Mountains and Valleys, and essentially what we're discussing is um, the natural ebbs and flows of life. That sometimes life has mountaintops, sometimes life has valleys, and sometimes, in fact, most of life is lived in the in-between of those two things. And so um, we're using this guy by the name of Elijah, who is a prophet in the Old Testament, um, who his life was lived back and forth between mountaintops and valley experiences. Um, And to lead us into our conversation today, I want to tell you a story about something that, not a story, like it's a make-believe, it's something that happened to me this past week. Um, it involves a, uh, one, of the, one of the God's, I think, greatest gifts um, to our, God, existence? I don't know. Um, it's, it's a place called Costco, okay? <laughs> um, now, a little bit of backstory about me. If, if this is your first time here, this might be brand new for you, but I um, am bivocational. Um, I, <laughs> I say I kind of moonlight as a pastor, and during a lot of the daytime, um, my family owns a meat company that I run called Registers Sausage, Registers Smoked Pork Sausage. Um, yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. <laughs> Next time, air horn for that one, okay? Just throwing that out there. In fact, let me, as, as an aside, um, so we're in Publix as Walmart's when Dixie Sam's, all that kind of stuff. And I was at the Publix on Ocala, you know, talking to um, uh, a lady getting our order. And, and I looked over there and like, our sales have really increased in that store. And from time to time, I make a joke like, hey, you know, if you don't want to tithe, just, you know, buy some sausage. And obviously as a joke, and then our sales have increased. I'm like, maybe they thought I was serious. I don't know. So it was a joke. Anyway, um, so... Our company has gone through a transition in the first few months of this year where we essentially outsourced all of our production, which gave us the um, ability to partner with some uh, companies that we wouldn't have the ability to partner with before because of the level of um, really our plant uh, made us at a a point where we wouldn't be able to face a third-party audit. And so one of those companies is Costco. So uh, it's my job, or one of my jobs, one of the many hats that I wear, um, to start to pursue new business and new leads and new companies like that. And we did the same thing with Sam's. Uh, it took us about from the first time that I called and emailed um, to the time that we actually got in as an inline item at Sam's Club. It took about 18 months. And so we started to go on this road with Costco. Now, my job and what I try to balance in that is the pleasant persistence of a salesperson. And if you're ever in sales, you know what I'm talking about because you don't want to be so annoying that they literally hate you, you know? And on the other side of it, you don't want to be so infrequent in talking to them and having a conversation or emailing that they just don't know you and forget about you. And so once a week, once a month, or not once a month, once a week I would call or I would email the corporate buyer at Costco. Because in Costco's, you may not know this, but Costco's, the decision to bring your product into a single store is not the decision of anyone at that store level. It's made on the corporate level, at least at the regional corporate level. So I have been, for the last couple of months, um, since February emailing and calling once a week the corporate buyer for all of the deli section of Costco warehouses um, for the entire Southeast. And about three weeks ago, I get an email back that says, can you meet April 19th at 11 a.m.? <laughs> to which I was, wanted to respond, unless Jesus comes back, yes. You know, <laughs> absolutely. And so I said, you know, yes. And we, you know, work out a couple of details who all is going to be there, how many people. So I'm going to go there. I'm going to cook them some sausage. Now, Obviously, in the process of this, there's a lot of prep work. I'm running tons of numbers. I'm doing all kinds of stuff in, in all of our QuickBooks and trying to figure out sales and what is, what's the most compelling way to phrase everything that we do. I'm going to cook them some sausage and do that whole song and dance. And, and I, by prep, I spoke to uh, my Uncle Jim. My Uncle Jim uh, worked for the Russell Corporation in sales, did a lot of corporate stuff, dealt with Costco on a corporate level very often. And so in my prep, I talked to him and said, you know, what would you suggest or what would you advise for this thing? So he you know, kind of gives me his thoughts and his ideas and some tips and so forth. One of the things he says is just so you know, with Costco, 
It is basically unheard of for you to walk into the first meeting and then for them to say, yes, we want you in a store. We want you in all the stores. Now, my goal is only Tallahassee, but I'm thinking, okay, but I wouldn't mind being in every Costco in America. You know, we wouldn't need to tithe anymore. You know what I mean? It would just be the register sanctuary. (laughs) I think I'm kidding. Anyway, (laughs) this is a side plan. Um, So, what we would do, or so my thought was, you know, in speaking with him, is he said, basically, you know, a win, a win for Costco is if they give you something to do. Because if they give you something to do, hey, we like what you're doing. Could you work on this? Could you think about this? Would you change this with your labels, possibly with your ingredients? Could you consider a couple things? He said, when they give you something to do, it means they're interested because Costco is a corporation that has no problem saying no. I said, okay. So I'm planning, I'm preparing, I get everything, get all our samples, I'm driving to Atlanta. And, and you know how it is. Where somebody tells you reality... But you can't help but think that you're different, you know? It's like, okay, I, I, I know what I should expect, but, and I know that that's a win, but maybe what he doesn't realize is I'm pretty persuasive, you know? I mean, I, I get up in front of a crowd of people every Sunday and talk and say, hey, here's this old, you know, 2,000-year-old, you know, Jewish carpenter named Jesus. You should believe him, and sometimes people actually do, you know? And it's not me, it's God, but, you know, hey, God uses me. So, I'm going to say, you know, and all I have to do is sell this person some sausage. Like, come on. That's okay. Yeah. All right. Just give you something to do. So, I go in. I, you know, I, I do all my prep and, and go, you know, stay in a hotel the night before, get up, you know, eat some breakfast, you know, you know exercise a little bit, drink some coffee, do a little of this, do a little that, go through my morning routine. And I go to sit in the meeting, and, 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 and you're trying to temper your expectations because you know that, okay, this is Costco, and they're not just going to say yes. But you're also thinking, okay, but we make really good sausage, and there's a lot of distinctives, and we have more of a traditional, and it's, you know, it, it, it's, it's super high quality. Um, so, you know, they're going to taste it, and they're going to say, oh, my gosh, like, this is God's gift to smoked meats, you know? <laughs> And I'm going to say, it's funny because I'm a pastor. You know, do you want to know Jesus? You know, so we're going to have salvation and sausage at the same time. It's going to be the most incredible meeting in the history of Atlanta. So, you know, naturally, as you can probably pick up, what happens is I go and I have a conversation. They say, man, this is really great. Man, your sales are impressive. Um, Could you work on a couple things? And, And about halfway into the meeting, it becomes apparent that they're not saying no, but they're not saying yes. They're saying, here's some stuff you could work on. And it's promising, and we're going to continue to pursue it and continue to go forward. But, but here's the reality. For me, internally, there's this little thing. There's this little wish. There's this little hope. There's this little dream that thinks maybe this is the thing. Maybe this is the conversation. Maybe this is the, you know, catalytic moment that all of a sudden everything changes for the rest of my life. You know, maybe this conversation. And you kind of have a wish and a hope and a dream. And no, it may or may not be reality. It's an expectation. And that's something that we can all identify with. That there's a hope and a dream and an expectation, but sometimes our hopes and our dreams and our expectations doesn't meet with our reality and there's a gap that's there. We've all experienced a relationship that you thought was going to be the relationship and you maybe spent days or weeks or months or even years investing in this relationship and the relationship doesn't end how you thought it was going to end because you thought it was going to end in marriage and it didn't. Or it did, and you thought marriage was going to solve everything. And then it didn't, so you decided, you know what? I know what the key to all marital problems is. We're going to have kids, you know? That just simplifies the equation. 
which all the single people are like, wait, what, that doesn't happen? No. Or you're on a career path and you think, you know, you've been doing this and you've been diligent, you've been excelling. And so the next thing that's going to happen, the expectation is if I do A and B, then C will happen. And you get there and not A, not B, not C, but not even D or E or F happen. This whole side thing begins to happen and you're totally disappointed. You've got a relationship, you've got a career path, you've got something that as you're getting older, you're thinking, I'm going to be able to retire, and this is what I'm going to be able to do, this is how I'm going to be able to live, and there's a gap between whatever that expectation that we all have and whatever reality has for us, there becomes a gap. And what's fascinating is the story that we're going to read today is what happens with Elijah, that he has an expectation based on what God has previously done, and what we're going to realize is that his expectation is not outrageous. His expectation is very, very, very reasonable, but his expectation is not what happens in reality. And so we're going to read Elijah's response and more so God's response to when that happens in Elijah's life. If you've got your Bible, you can open up to 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1. I'm going to give you a brief synopsis of what led us to this point. Elijah was a prophet. In the Old Testament. Essentially what that meant was that how God speaks to us today is through his word, through the scriptures. How God spoke to um, in, in the people of God in the Old Testament was through a prophet. Sometimes it would be something that's going to happen way off in the future. Sometimes, some, sometimes it was something that was happening right now. In the middle of that, God speaks to Elijah. Elijah goes to Ahab. Ahab is the king. Ahab, by the way, is the worst king that the nation has had so far. Ahab, in a decision to try to soothe, you know, kind of some national tensions that was happening, marries this lady named Jezebel, who's from another country, who's from another religion. Jezebel's religion begins to become the religion of the people of God to the point where all of the prophets of God are put to death, except for a couple that were kind of hidden into a cave. So Elijah comes up. God says, Elijah, I want you to go talk to Ahab. I want you to tell him that it's not going to rain until I say it rains again. So Elijah says, it's not going to rain until I say it rains again. And for three and a half years, it does not rain, and it decimates the economy of the country. Three and a half years later, Elijah shows back up and says, we're about to have a showdown. I want you to get all of the prophets from Jezebel's crew I want you to get, in fact, 850 of them in total. And we're going to have two bulls that are on this, these, these altars. And your one's going to be an altar for, you know, Baal and, you know, Asherah. And one's going to be a, 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 a thing for God. And, and whichever God sends down fire and consumes the bull, he is God. And sure enough, prophets of Baal, prophets of Asherah get together and they, you know, do all these kinds of, you know, prayers and things and they work themselves up and they pray, God, 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 nothing happens. God doesn't answer. There's no God there. They cut themselves as well as the ritual. Blood starts flowing everywhere around noontime. Nothing happens. They start a little later on into the early afternoon, you know, late afternoon, early even. They start putting all of their presence, all of their gifts saying, God, would you come down? Sure enough, no answer from their false gods. Elijah, in the middle of the drought, pours buckets and buckets and buckets and buckets of water till there's like a moat that's running around this thing and says, God, would you please answer? Because the underlying implication was that whichever God was wrong, the consequence of falsely prophesying about God is that the prophets or prophets would be put to death. So sure enough, fire comes down. The nation declares 
that Yahweh or Jehovah is in fact God. Elijah starts talking to Ahab like their boy, saying, basically, Elijah, you don't have to, you know, or Ahab, you don't have to turn back. You don't have to go back. You know, you can lead the country in this direction. Well, in chapter 19, verse 1, we pick up when Ahab goes back to tell his wife Jezebel about what just happened to all of her prophets. So, if you got your Bible, 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1. So, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Now, pause. Let me explain this because this gets a little dicey. Two things were implicated in this. One... Some of these prophets, they say, were probably implicated in the, in the killing of all the prophets of God. So there's a sense of justice in that. But in beyond that, this was the consequence if you were found to be wrongly prophesying and declaring things of God that God had not in fact said. And so Ahab comes back and says, man, you know, all your prophets that you really cared about and loved and they prophesied the things that you wanted to say, they're dead. So Jezebel, reasonably so, gets ticked off about the whole thing. Then Jezebel, verse 2, sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if you do not make your life as the life, if I do not make your life, I'm sorry, as the life of one of them by this time. I always send a messenger saying, and Elijah, I am going to kill you. So verse 3, then he, Elijah, was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, which is the southern kingdom, and left his servants there. Now, let me give you just a little bit more context of the, the dynamic that's, that's happened. Elijah just told the king, not going to rain. Three and a half years later, doesn't rain. Three and a half years later, on the top of the mountain, all of Israel gathered together. All the people, all the influencers, all of the you know, big timers were gathered together. The prophets were gathered together. Everybody was there. Everybody just saw fire come down, consume the bull, consume the wood, consume the stones. They didn't even know when we were away, consume the water. We, they all just saw this happen. And then Elijah prayed, and it rained for the first time in three and a half years. But... Elijah's expectation, reasonably so in that, would have been, this is how God is going to turn the nation around. This is how God, the people just declared that Yahweh, Jehovah, is in fact God. But they didn't. The opposite happened. Jezebel decides instead of turning to God, we're going to kill you. No. The expectation of repentance and God-centeredness was in every single way Elijah's expectation, but the reality was that was the opposite of what happened. Isn't this true? Sometimes the most demoralizing defeats aren't simply defeats. They are defeats that happen on the heels of your greatest victory. Because all you can think is if that didn't work, what would? Think about that. Elijah, three and a half years, praying, praying, praying. No rain, no rain, no rain, no rain. On the mountaintop, God sent fire down, fire comes down. He's like, that's what I'm talking about. 
praise, rain comes down. That's what I'm saying. And then, you know, the natural thing would be like, okay, God, now, you know, Ahab, you know, this is what you should do. This is how you should live. This is how we should lead. And Ahab tells Jezebel, and Jezebel says, kill him, to which he would naturally think, if that, if, if not raining for three and a half years and fire down from heaven didn't work, what on God's green earth would? This is the difficulty. Because sometimes in life, it's not simply that you have defeats. It's that you have defeats on the heels of extraordinary victory. You thought your career was saved. You thought your family was saved. You thought, and I thought, and we thought that God was going to do something extraordinary in somebody's life. And then on the heels of what seemed like the catalytic moment where everything was about to change, the opposite, defeat, happens. And it demoralizes Elijah to the point where he honestly does not want to continue to exist. And so this is what he prays. But he himself, verse 4, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die. Saying, he said, it is enough now, O Lord. It's enough. I've had, I've, I've had enough. I've been through this. So take away my life. For I am no better than my fathers. Apparently, God, I'm just as sinful as everybody else. Apparently, God, there's nothing special about me. There's nothing holy about me. Apparently, God, that, you know, it's over. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him. Now, this is, this is, this is where I love this story. Because it's at this point where we normally think, okay, and then God said to Elijah, Elijah. You got it wrong, bud. You know, Elijah, turn it around. Elijah, I'm still here. Elijah falls asleep and he says, hey man, wake up. It's lunchtime. It's like, it wouldn't be my first sentence. Verse six, and he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank. Now this is, this, this is, this is a little bit different. This is like, you know, this huge demoralizing defeat. This is this huge, you know, thing. And God, I don't want to live anymore. And God wakes up and says, hey man, I got some Chick-fil-A for you. It's like, thanks, one. You know, I appreciate that. Then he goes to sleep again. He says, oh, I brought something else. I brought, I brought, this time I brought you some four rivers, you know? Here's some burn-ins, you know, take and eat. We've got a big journey ahead. Let me, let me tell you what I love, love, love about this story. This story, this account has absolutely nothing to do with Elijah doing anything special. This story is marked by God bringing Elijah to the awareness that he is in fact doing something. It's just different than what Elijah thought. How he was going to accomplish his purpose of redirecting the nation of Israel back to himself was just simply different than how Elijah said it. And so he begins to appeal to Elijah, saying, Elijah, 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 let's, we don't have to hash everything out, man. Here, here first, you got a big journey yet. In fact, God has a plan for you. you. You thought running into the woods was going away from God. What you didn't realize was this is where God is going to meet you through angels. He's going to bring you food. He's going to bring you water. He's going to sustain you. In fact, you've got 40 days of a journey up ahead. So sure enough, he travels. End of verse 8. 
food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, you might not know this, but Horeb, the Mount of God, was actually the same place as Sinai, which is where Moses got the Ten Commandments. So in the same way God revealed himself to Moses, he's saying, you know, Elijah, Eli, man, I want you to go to that same mountain because I'm about to show you some things that I'm doing. Verse 9, so he, then he came to a cave and lodged in it. This is on the mount. And behold, the word of God came to him. And he said, God said to Elijah, what are you doing here? Elijah, I love how he says that. It's not like they're both like, you know, at Costco, okay? And they're like, oh, what are you doing here? Like, I didn't, okay, cool. No, he says, Elijah, tell me about yourself. And they, I, I could give a whole sermon or a leadership talk on the fact that he didn't come with assumptions. He came with questions, which is the most incredible way because it gives the other person a voice. Different sermon, different day. Anyway. So he, verse 10, said, I have been very jealous. This is what Elijah says, for the Lord. In other words, that's the way that they would say, I have pursued you passionately, persistently. I have been zealous for you. I have been, I have been jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. This is a feeling, though it wasn't true that Elijah was the only one left because there was lots of prophets in Elijah. That Elijah felt this extraordinary sense of isolation in his defeat. Even though God came to him, God you know, fed him and he took a nap and then God fed him and he took a nap and then God said, I want you to travel for 40 days. And the whole time I, could, I think he's just traveling for 40 days saying, I'm alone, I'm alone, I'm alone, I'm defeated, I'm alone, I'm defeated, I'm alone. And we feel extraordinary, and this is true, we feel extraordinary isolation when we feel extraordinary defeat, when the expectation of what we thought was going to happen didn't meet with the reality of what actually happened, and the gap is filled with self-doubt and isolation. So God says, Elijah. Verse 11, he said, go out and stand on the mount of the Lord. So don't tell him what's going on. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and a strong wind tore the mountain and broke it in pieces, the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. Would you imagine this? You're, you know, God says, you know, I want you to go out and I want you to go outside. I want you to stand on this ledge. And all of a sudden you see this, this huge wind come by. Rocks just get dashed everywhere. But that's not God. And after the wind, an earthquake but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. Now, this is huge because Elijah had just defeated the prophets of Baal through fire. I mean, I want you to imagine this. God says, okay, I want you to go out and I want you to see some stuff. I got some stuff for you to see. I want to reveal myself to you. And so this huge wind comes by and it's like, well, I thought that was God, you know. And then this earthquake comes and it's like, oh, that's definitely God. And then this huge fire happens. It's like, yep, you know, check, 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 Trinity three, holy number. That's definitively God, you know. But it says that wasn't God. I am so thankful for what happens next. Because this is our experience. If we're just being totally honest, if you're here and you're a Christian, this is your experience. There may have been a ton of different circumstances, a ton of different situations that you tried to speak what was happening. And this was a sign and that was a sign. There was this big thing that happened and it was this huge sign.
And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. If you're, you've been a Christian for a while, then perhaps you've heard the Holy Spirit be described this way. This is how older translations translate this text. And behold, the sound of a still, small voice. It wasn't this huge, it wasn't this gigantic, it wasn't this momentous. God wasn't going to change the nation through this gigantic catalytic event. It was through a still, small voice. Some some of you've heard that and felt that when people say, how do you hear God? I call it the late at night alone in your bed being an honest with yourself test. You're in your bed, just you and God, or maybe you and your husband or wife. You're being really honest with yourself. No one's looking, lights are out. And deep down, there's this still, small voice that's speaking. And it's almost like it's a whisper. And we look for God in these huge things. And this is what God says next. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in a cloak, went out and stood at the entrance of the cave, and behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? This is what I love. Elijah Elijah still hasn't gotten it yet. He still hasn't understood it. He says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altar, killed your prophets with a sword, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, not, Elijah, I understand where you're coming from. Let me speak back into your existence. You are valuable. You are loved. You are cared for. Those Those are all true. He said, Elijah, go. Go. Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, Nimshi, whatever, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. Elijah, the son of Saphat, Abel, Maholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel, Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel. All the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that have not kissed him. In other words, Elijah, I am about to do something. I have not deserted you. I have not leaving you. I have not not left you. I have not forsaken you. And Elijah, I know that you perhaps feel like this is the end of the road, that if that didn't work, nothing's going to work. But here's what I want you to know, Elijah, or Elijah. I want you to know that I have a plan, but my plan did not look like your expectation. But that doesn't mean my plan wasn't there valid or sufficient. We so often can even get to the point where we doubt the simple existence of God because we had an expectation and that expectation wasn't met with what happened in reality. And in that gap, we place something. And for some of us, we place doubt. For some of us, we place some type of depression. For some of us, we place some type of an isolation. For some of us, we place all kinds of things that happen in this gap. But God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to simply place trust 
That perhaps what you thought was happening wasn't in fact happening, but I being God know exactly what I am doing, and I wasn't going to change the nation through fire coming down and through drought, that those were all preparatory things, that I was simply going to change the world, the nation, through a whisper, through my word, through that prophet, through that leader, and through that leader. And by the way, Elijah, you're not alone. I've got 7,000 people that are back waiting for you that have not bowed. And Elijah, I know this didn't perhaps look what you thought it was going to look like. But this is what the purpose and the plan was the entire time. If you're in here and you're a Christian, let me just put it a little differently in the New Testament context. If you're a Christian, here's what that means. You have placed your faith, your hope, and your trust entirely in the person of Jesus. Your entire life revolves around him. This now means that God is in a category in your life. God is your entire life. That upon the realization that God so loved you, so loved me, so loved us, he saw our sinfulness. He gave his son to die for us, though we did not deserve it. He sent his son into the world to be brutally murdered on a cross to offer grace and forgiveness because the gap between our, our sinfulness and his holiness was too big. So he sent his son Jesus to be the gap filler that we could not fill in and of ourselves. And if God would not withhold his son, we can still trust Trust him when life falls apart and we are wanting to give up. How tempting was it? In fact, how much of the story was it? When Jesus died on the cross, all of his followers deserted him. Not one person, we talked about this on Easter, not one person Easter morning stood up and said, he is risen. Everybody said, indeed. They said, he's dead. And they said, we know. And they said, he's not here. The response was, who took him? That didn't mean God was not in control when Jesus rose from the dead. That would be the thing that we would champion for thousands of years after. But that had to happen for the purposes of God to be accomplished. And though it may not be personally satisfying for us or emotionally satisfying for us, that does not mean that God is not in control, that God does not have a plan, and that God doesn't have a purpose to orchestrate and to work for his glory, not for my satisfaction. And if we're being honest, at the core of what it is, for a lot of us, the expectation that doesn't meet the reality isn't a disappointment in God. It's that we just hope God would have it easy for us, not be glorified in and through us. So here's here's the thing. I don't know where you are and what you are and, and what you're going through in life. But for all of us, we inevitably face this. The expectation doesn't meet the reality, and there's a gap. And my hope is not that you do anything with this. My hope is not that you go and you think and you pray and you do this and you take this big act. Here's what I hope. I hope that you simply have the awareness that this is oftentimes how God works. And that God would make us aware of his plans and purposes. God would do what he did to Elijah, which was perhaps even just progressively 
open our eyes to the realization that he still has a plan, that he is still in control, that he still knows what he's doing. And as Christians in the New Testament, because he sent his son to die for us, we can trust him regardless. I hope and I hope and I hope and I pray that, man, maybe there's... Maybe you didn't get into the school. Maybe you didn't get into the career. Maybe you're going to graduate and you think, man, it's going to be awesome. I'm going to put on 80K starting out, no problem. You work at Starbucks and you're at Chick-fil-A and you're saying, my pleasure, my pleasure, my pleasure. Polynesian, of course, you know. And I think that's fantastic if you are. But I'm just telling you, there's this expectation that's not met. And you say, God, what did I do? What did I do? Perhaps nothing. Just be open to the awareness and the realization. You had a plan for your family, and that plan didn't come to fruition. You had a plan for your retirement, and that plan didn't come to fruition. You had a plan for when your parents got older, or you had a plan plan as a parent who was getting older. And you 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 thought how it was going to work out, and it doesn't work out that way. It doesn't mean that God's not real. Perhaps God is just doing something bigger on planet Earth than us. Perhaps his ways actually are bigger than our ways. Perhaps he actually does know more than us. And perhaps... As a Christian, because of the fact that I believe that I serve a personal God who so loved me, he sent his son to die for me, that on the cross, ultimate grace, ultimate love, ultimate acceptance, ultimate forgiveness, that I can actually trust him if he would sacrifice that much for me, that my heavenly father loves me despite how difficult my life may be right now. I just pray that God would help us to be aware of perhaps what he's already doing. But I'll end it with a real, real quick story. Was that this church thing? It was, like, it was like a decade ago. So anyway, self thing. And this guy was building this huge pot. He's on potter wheel, whatever that person's called. Art people, help me out. And as he, you know, he was human, it was four feet tall, five feet tall, something like that. And, and it was, you know, this extraordinary thing. He was talking about God in the process of it, talking about what God molding us, God is shaping us, how we are clay in the potter's hands. And he just built it up and built it up. And he was smoothing the walls and smoothing the walls. And it comes up and it creates this, you know, this beautiful, like, vase vase. You know, he's, he's just, it's just it's fantastic. It's magnificent. Especially for me, like, I'm so not artistic. It's, it's ridiculous. So I'm like, looking, I'm like, like he's an angel, you know. So I'm sitting looking at this thing, and it was, it was, I mean, it was incredible. And as I, I, as as I was sitting there at this church that I didn't normally go to, all of a sudden, he basically takes a string or I don't know a wire or something, and he cuts it in half. And it was like almost as audible oh, from the audience. This is this beautiful masterpiece that he had created that was now decimated. What he said essentially was this. In order to create that, I had to build it up to this point. But my plan the entire time was to build this incredible structure, this incredible vase that it used to go up and it used to come back in and I'd cut it in half, but I had to do that. Because in order to create what I had intentionally created, that the potter the entire time knows what he is creating. Though the clay seems like and it looks like and it points towards, it's making this great, you know, beautiful, artistic edifice. I don't know. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's cool. So, and, you know, we think it's creating this entire thing, but yet in the middle of it, it gets cut. And God says, that was the plan the entire time. You just didn't see it. But I had to do that in order to give it the structure and the character and the integrity that it needed. 
I think more often than not, it's so inexplicable, it's so difficult, and we are so notoriously bad as Christians at saying, and this is why that happened, and that's why that happened, and that's why that happened. More often, it's this still, small whisper that speaks to us, that says, though it may seem bad, I am not done. So go. Go. I'm going to reveal that to you. I'm going to show it to you progressively. And I know you thought I was building, but I am not done with you. So go. I know who you are, what you are. If there's a disappointment in your life right now, maybe it's a year from now, two years from now, two weeks from now, five years from now. I don't know. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you have patience with us. God, that we have, and we put A, B, C, and D together, and we know exactly, and we feel exactly where this sequence of expectations is leading to, this sequence of what has happened leads to an expectation of what tomorrow is. But when tomorrow doesn't end or become what we think tomorrow has become, we often have a gap. For some of us, God, to be honest, we at one point followed you and have left you because you didn't do what we thought you ought to have done and worked how we thought you ought to have worked. And God, you weren't real. We just didn't realize that your ways are different and higher. You know the beginning, middle, and the end. And so I pray for anyone in here struggling with this, that maybe they're in the middle of that period. Maybe they just ran like Elijah did. Thought if that didn't work, then what on God's green earth will They're in the wilderness. They feel isolation. Perhaps they're on a cave. God, I pray that you would just draw them back to you as you did with Elijah and you would simply help them to come to the awareness. Open their eyes. Open our eyes. Open my eyes to see that you are there the entire time, but perhaps your plan is just different than what we thought it would be. And Jesus, we know that in the middle of that, we can trust you because you sent your son to die for us. And if you would love us so deeply, so passionately, and so inexplicably, because we didn't deserve it, that we can trust you when life doesn't turn out exactly like we thought it would, or maybe even close to what we thought it would. I pray that you would send people and just say, go. I have still called you. I still am going to use you. And I pray that we would trust you with that. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.